0: Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church again. Uh, my name is Kelly Scout. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, uh, especially if you are new to Trinity. Uh, we really want you to feel welcome here. We, uh, I would love to meet you after the service. I'm going to be out in the back in the foyer, uh, so please greet me if that's you. I will greet you back. Um, I heard in the first service that some people are a bit chilly. I hope it's okay now. I do want to let you know. And our new members' class. It was about 110 degrees in there, and it's it's actually part of a hot cold therapy we're doing with our new members um, to improve their health. And so, um, you know, just bundle up if you can. Um, so, a lot of you know that for the past for the past six weeks we've been looking at the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, beginning with God's initial call to Abraham out of a life of worshiping idols and into. The promise of becoming a great people in a great land, living in the blessing of a relationship with God, and the promise of of becoming a blessing to all the nations of the earth. This is the promise that that God has given to Abraham. And we've seen how Abraham and Sarah wrestle with and, and question this promise in some profound ways. Much of this wrestling and questioning has been due to the fact that Abraham and Sarah do not have a child together. And Sarah is too old to have a child. And yet, all of God's promises to them are contingent upon them having a child who would carry on their line and become this great people of God. So you can see how that's a problem. Well, something very important has happened since the last time we checked in on Abra and Sarah. Against all hope, God has supernaturally enabled Sarah to conceive, and she has given birth to this promised child, Isaac. Some of you may um, remember we talked about uh, Hagar, Sarah's servant, a few weeks ago. Well, Hagar and her son, Ishmael, are now they're living in the wilderness. God is tending to them. But that means that that Isaac is the only son left in the household through whom God could fulfill all of these great promises. And so we come to this morning's passage with this in mind in Genesis chapter 22. And so I invite you to read along with me in your order of worship or in your Bibles. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering And so they both of them, they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham... So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together for the receiving of it. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you speak to us that we might know you Lord, that we might know your great love for us And that we might live in your love. And so we invite you today, give light to our eyes. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, that we would receive your word. That it would transform our hearts. Lord, we ask that your spirit um, would form us and make us in your image and likeness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can still remember the first time that I saw the movie Star Wars as a boy. It it was a big deal, as it's also been a big deal uh, when my kids first see Star Wars. I also remember the most disappointing part of the movie. And maybe the most famous scene in the movie, it's the part where Obi-Wan is walking around the Death Star and he comes across Darth Vader, who sadly only has eight minutes of screen time in the first film. But this is the moment that, that every boy is waiting for. A lightsaber duel between good and evil. I mean this, this was the this was the chance to, to stick it to Darth Vader. As cool and awesome as he was, this was the chance this was the chance to stick it to him. And so, spoiler alert, cover their ears if they're about to see this film, but I could just not imagine why Obi-Wan would pull in his lightsaber. And allow Darth Vader to strike him down. Obi-Wan could explain all he wanted about what he was doing and why it was for the better. And how he was going you know, yeah, to be more powerful. Whatever. His sacrifice did not make sense to a young boy who thought that lightsabers were very cool. Well, an even more epic story this morning... On the stage of real history, not the screen, we come across a sacrifice that is even more bewildering. And it's not just bewildering to young boys. It's also a sacrifice that, like Obi-Wan's disappointing sacrifice, also ends up furthering the mission of God. Our passage this morning is a story arranged, at least in our English translation, into three paragraphs, into three parts. And in each part, we hear this powerful refrain, your son, your only son. We hear it in verse 2, in God's call to Abraham. We hear it again in verse 12, when God says not to lay a hand on the boy. And we hear it again in verse 16, when God reaffirms his covenant promises to Abraham. Your son, he says, your only son. And our outline this morning tracks nicely with the order or flow of these three parts of the story. As we are first going to see the portrayal, and next the provision, and finally the pattern. Portrayal, provision, and pattern. And so first the portrayal. The portrayal of the father's love. If you, if you are perplexed shocked, maybe even outraged by this passage, which, if you are new to the Bible and to the Christian faith, is a, is a very likely response, I want to affirm your response. You are right where you should be. It means that you are actually following along and you understood the story. For those of us who have read the passage a number of times um, and are perhaps no longer perplexed and shocked, And I can fall into this camp, we would do well to see it again with fresh eyes and ears. Because this passage should jar us. This passage should shake us at our core. God's call to Abraham seems like lunacy. But when we think that this this is not just a story, but a this is a real life event. God actually told Abraham to take his son and sacrifice him. It is is truly inconceivable what God is asking Abraham to do here. But I'm describing the first part of the story as the portrayal of the father's love and not as the portrayal of lunacy. Because what God used as a test of Abraham's faith is at the same time the portrayal of our heavenly father's love. His inconceivable love in giving up his son Jesus for us. As the New Testament says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. This language in, in Romans is language that some of the best Genesis and Romans scholars believe uh, is specifically alluding to the Abraham and Isaac event. And yes, this, this was a test of Abraham's faith, but I believe that God gave us this part of the story, verses 1 to 10, first and foremost, to give us a window into our Heavenly Father's love for us. And I would say that it's the portrayal instead of a portrayal, because unlike any other passage in scripture, this one brings home to us what it actually would have been like for a father to willingly give up the son that he loves. Even in the passion narratives, the the focus is on the son and his suffering. And so today's passage gives us a unique glimpse into God's heart and offering up his son. Just as Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings uh, slows down the story a lot of times, right? He does does this almost to a grinding halt at times. And he does this in order to build the characters and to build their relationships and to give us a window into their hearts in a similar manner, although still more succinct than Tolkien. Genesis 22 slows down to a crawl so that we can feel the weight of what's happening here. Minute details are included. Look at verse 3. Abraham rose early, saddled his donkey, took two young men. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. We're reminded that with every little detail of faithful preparation, Abraham is conscious of what's about to happen. Verse 4. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar, If you've ever turned a corner and you remember your eyes falling on a place where maybe you dreaded hearing some bad news or, or maybe saw the stadium of a team that was going to crush you or maybe it was a standardized testing site and you didn't really want to go there at all, if you can imagine that, can you imagine that moment when Abraham turns the corner and first lays eyes on the place where his son will die? Verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Just as Jesus carried his cross to Golgotha, Isaac carries the wood of his sacrifice. And then we're told that, that Abraham takes the two instruments by which we will, he will offer up his son, the fire starter and the knife. He takes them in his hands. And then in verse 7, There's this agonizing exchange as Isaac inquires about the lamb to be sacrificed. We see the intimate language of my father and my son. Finally, verses 9 and 10, the binding of Isaac on the altar down to the very moment of lifting the knife to sacrifice his son. Hardly a detail is spared. And yet one, at least one, is. Abraham is spared the final blow. Unlike our heavenly father who was not spared the final blow of his son going to the cross. And friends, I, I want you to know this morning, we are not rehearsing these details to stir up some kind of morbid sense of guilt for what God has done for us in Christ. That is the opposite of the intent of this passage. Instead, this passage opens our eyes to the depths of God's great love for us and it beckons us to live in this love. If you're prone to seeing your relationship with God uh, as, more, uh, as more transactional in nature, some kind of religious exchange of give and take with God which we all do at least at times. This passage says to us, no, that's missing it. Our relationship with God is is rooted in, and it is about living in God's perplexing, even outrageous love for us. He did not spare his son, but he gave him up for you. If you believe in the grace of God, but, but you tend to keep God at arm's length, your relationship maybe feels proper, polite, but not warm, honest, and authentic. Maybe that's, perhaps that's because a lot of your relationships are that way. If that's you, you need to see the heart of God in this passage. It may offend our Presbyterian, our Charlottesvilleian, or cavalierish sensibilities, but this passage tells us that God's love for us is not tame. He did not spare his son, but gave him up for you. If you have trouble believing that God would love you, perhaps because you're not particularly fond of yourself or because you believe that you have done something or you have done too many things to offend God, you need to see the heart of God in this passage. He did not spare his son, but gave him up for you. Friends, we were made to live our days in this great love, and yet so often we don't. And so what I want to do, is I want to invite you to meditate this week on the love of God. Invite you to wrestle with your view of God and his view of you and whether it matches this portrayal of his love. And I invite you to rest in his love. The second part of our passage tells us how a holy God could love us even when we are very unlovable. Here we see the provision. The provision of an imperishable lamb. In verse 12, God says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And then in verse 13, he says it, And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, while Abraham's burnt offering would not have had all of the subtle distinctions of the later priesthood and and temple worship that God established under Moses... It is safe to say that the Abraham's burnt offering at least carried the sense of, of a merciful transfer of guilt. Signaling that God was bringing his good and righteous judgment on the sacrifice, on the offered animal, rather than on the offerer, rather than on his people. It was a merciful transfer of guilt. And so why do we need to know this? Well, up to this point in the passage, we've seen that Abraham has served as a, as a type or a sign of God the Father, revealing God's great love for us. And, and we've seen that Isaac uh, is, a, is a type of Christ, carrying the wood and being offered up by his father. But in this scene, even though Isaac is the promised offspring of Abraham, and the one through whom God would build his people— We see here that Isaac is not the one who would actually redeem God's people from our sin. Isaac is is not God's ultimate provision for sin. And, And in fact, Isaac himself is a sinner and in need of a substitute in judgment. Isaac, like all of us, needed a perfect sacrifice who would not just take his death, but who would overcome his death. Isaac needed Christ. And the ram caught in the thicket, like, like all of Israel's sacrifice, rams and lambs and calves, etc., the ram points to Christ. Several of the early church fathers actually believed that the that the thicket in which the ram's head was was caught actually points to the crown of thorns uh, placed on Jesus' head. Some of the early church fathers got carried away with allegory at times, but, but regardless And it it might, I don't know the answer. But regardless, the ram is a temporary substitute pointing to our permanent imperishable substitute in death. We have an imperishable lamb who was slain for us, who rules and reigns at the right hand of God and is always interceding for us. And Abraham, despite not knowing how God was going to work all this out, how he was going to save Isaac, how he was going to accomplish salvation for us, in spite of not knowing any of this, nevertheless, Abraham, our father in the faith, never, he, he shows us what faith in God's merciful, merciful provision of a lamb looks like. We see it in verse 5, I and the boy will go over there and worship and we'll come to you again. In verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb. The New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 19, confirms it. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Are you living in this same mercy? Do you know that God has provided for himself a lamb, an imperishable lamb, his son, his only son who died and was raised for you. This is how a holy God could love you and me. He has made us worthy partakers of his love by taking on our sin, dying our death, and then overcoming our death and resurrection. He has made us worthy partakers. He's provided a ram not providentially caught in a thicket, but a willing, imperishable Lamb, an enduring, lasting sacrifice for us. So we've seen the portrayal of the Father's love, the provision of an imperishable lamb. And finally, we see here the pattern of mission, the pattern of mission. We see in the final section of our passage, verses 15 and 19, that, that God reaffirms his covenant promises to Abraham of land and people and blessing. And then, then in verse 18, God promises again to accomplish his mission, mission of blessing all the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring. But we also see here an additional element to the promise, something we haven't seen before. At the, at the end of verse 18, the angel of the Lord adds, because you have obeyed my voice, And at the end of verse 16, we read, Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. In God's earlier affirmations of his promise, like I said, there was not this additional element of of being contingent on Abraham's obedience. But what we see here is, is that Abraham's response to God's call is now incorporated into the fulfillment of the mission. What's going on here? Why the change? Is God still sovereign over his mission to redeem a people from every tongue and tribe and nation? Or is it now contingent on Abraham's faith and ours? Well, yes, he is sovereign over it. Otherwise, he could not promise it. When Jesus gives his disciples their marching orders to take the gospel to every tongue and tribe and nation... He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But within the sovereignty and mercy of God, He has chosen to use us, His people, as the primary means of accomplishing His mission. By the way, there's a great little book um, by J.I. Packer on this called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Churches like ours, um, in in the Reformed tradition, can sometimes rightly be accused of of emphasizing the sovereignty of God to such an extent that we lose sight of this, that we lose sight of the fact that God has chosen to use us as his primary instruments, instruments in fulfilling his mission. It's possible for us to be like the minister who told future missionary to India, William Carey, essentially, sit down and shut up, God doesn't need you to proclaim his word to the nations. But you see, what this misses is that God does not only ordain the ends of his mission, God also ordains the means of his mission. And the means of his mission run straight through our hearts. The means of God's mission in the world is tied up with his mission of transforming our hearts. And we see this in Abraham. It's been a long journey for Abraham to get to this place of of unquestioning surrender. But Abraham now shows us the pattern of mission that we're going to see throughout Scripture. That the kingdom of God advances when we die to ourselves for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. And just as Abraham offering up Isaac... The promised Son, on whom all the promises of God were contingent. Just as that sacrifice made no earthly sense, rarely, if ever, will dying to ourselves in this world make earthly sense. I want you to know I'm, I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone right now. Coming out of a financial education and background, at least for a few years. I know quite well how to be measured and reasonable. And if that's you as well, there can be a lot of good in that. I'm not not criticizing being measured and reasonable, but being measured and reasonable can also keep us from taking steps of faith. I recently listened to a a book that a number of you have probably read. It's a best-selling book called The Psychology of Money. And, And there is a lot of excellent, measured and reasoned advice uh, in the book about humility, about contentment, about patience in our approach to money and and to life. But one of the main premises of the book that, that came around again and again, especially at the end, is that the ultimate goal in life is this, that when you wake up each morning, you have the ability to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, for as long as you want. I just listened to this the other night. He says it over and over again. That's the goal. The life of faith, however, rejects this premise. and says that the true life is to be found not in being free from all constraint. True life is found in doing the will of God. In being absolutely committed to his good purposes, which will often run completely counter- To what makes earthly sense. I can think of a couple times in my life where I've I've made this decision to do what didn't make earthly sense. One of those was marrying a godly young woman at a young age without much money saved up. Turned out to be a really good call. The second was a few years later uh, leaving two well-paying jobs to go into campus ministry and trust God month to month to provide for our needs. And not everyone is not, God's not calling everyone to, to do this. Uh, Charlottesville doesn't need 500 pastors at Trinity. Um, we do need, we need a couple. Um, but, uh, but you know what? The world does need 500 missionaries and pastors. So if you all quit your jobs, that's totally fine as well. Um, but I want to testify um, to God's goodness and provision in those decisions. Um, but I don't want to present myself as being an expert in this. Because the reality is that the daily decisions we make about how we will spend our lives and whether we will die to ourselves or not, those daily decisions are at least as important as the big decisions. And it's in those daily decisions that I struggle. Rico Tice, uh, a a British guy and and founder of an outreach ministry called Christianity Explored, he, he puts his finger on one extremely common way that we try to hold on to our earthly lives in his book honest evangelism uh, also a great little book and he says that that's holding on to our reputation and this hits home for me he gives one example i loved my grandmother and she loved me but the hard truth is that i love myself more than her I wanted my family to think well of me more than I wanted her to think of Christ as her Savior. That's why I didn't speak the gospel to her. I love myself more than I loved her and more than I loved my Lord. Of course, he and, and we have the same kinds of struggles, not just in our, in our families, but in our workplaces, in our communities, and uh, our friendships, new friendships, old friendships. We know what he's talking about. Ty speaks of, of this as, as our willingness to, to cross the pain line in dying to ourselves for Christ and his kingdom. As Abraham clearly crossed the pain line in his obedience to God's call, trusting God completely with the hope of his future. And what was the result? Verse 18. And your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed Because you have obeyed my voice. This is the pattern of mission. And if it seems daunting, it is. It it is undeniably daunting at times. Even Jesus seemed to find it daunting in the Garden of Gethsemane. The only thing that will, will free us and will enable us to live this life of faith is knowing and relishing How deeply we are loved by our father who gave up his son for us, knowing and living in that love, knowing that we have an imperishable lamb who who has taken away our sin and who enables us to come freely into our father's presence and into his love. If this God is for us, who could be against us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, that you are building your kingdom. Lord, we prayed earlier, Chris prayed earlier for the many messes, disasters, catastrophes around our world, the war, the pain, the distress, the strife. And we we do pray for this and, and, and we confess that we are often overwhelmed by it. And yet, Lord, we praise you that Throughout the world, you are also building your kingdom. You are also proclaiming your word and pursuing people and drawing people from every tongue and tribe and nation in. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, that we would be so sure of your great love for us. So sure of your sacrifice for us. That we would live freely, absolutely committed to living the life you've called us to live, would help us to die to ourselves, that we might find life more fully in you. In Christ's name, amen.